0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey, and this week Steph's taking a quick break, but while she's away, I was joined by a special guest, Charity Majors. Now for folks who've been listening to the show lately, I'll know I've been mentioning one idea or another from Charity almost every episode these days. Charity's work spans from the deeply technical through to the deeply human, and across all of it, she brings such a wealth of experience and pragmatism while consistently providing grounded, actionable advice about how we can improve all aspects of our work. Now to give a bit more context for those who aren't as familiar with Charity's work, she is the co-founder and CTO of Honeycomb, which is an observability platform that we talk about more in the episode. Uh, Charity is also a prolific blogger, tweeter, and speaker, and general lever of digital breadcrumbs for the rest of us to hopefully follow. And Charity is also one of the hosts of the AliCast podcast. Uh, that's Observability 011Y podcast. And in fact, in the intro to the first AliCast episode, Charity provides a beautiful summary of her approach to the varied work that we do. Quote, I'm someone who's always been drawn to where the beautiful theory of computing meets the awkward, messy reality of actually trying to do things. That quote rang so deeply true to me when I heard it and really encompassed what I see across the variety of work that Charity has shared with us. And frankly, I've been so impressed with the quality and quantity of wonderful content that Charity has shared over the years. Uh, I was really just thrilled to get the chance to sit down and talk with her directly. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Charity Majors. Thanks so much for joining us today, Charity.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: As I've mentioned on many an episode, I've been following your work for a while now. And at this point, I would say that just about every Bike Shed episode has a reference to you and some piece of work that you have put out into the world, whether it be a tweet or a blog post or a conference talk or something. So I'm, I'm so grateful for all the work that you put out into the world and for you taking the time to chat with us today.
1: That's so exciting. Yeah, I feel right at home here then. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Uh, well, I want to dive in. I think it's sort of the core of some of the conversation that we'll be having, which is around instrumentation and observability, uh, and sort of observability as a, a newer, noveler form of how we think about this space. Um, but yeah. to give a bit of context, I was hoping you might be able to give just the quick summary for anyone who might not be as familiar with observability as a concept and what that means now, and Honeycomb as a product and how it offers affordances around observability and sort of pushes that envelope forward.
1: Yeah. I think of observability as being about the unknown unknowns. You know, for a long time, all of the complexity was really bound up in the app, right? You had, you had the load balancer, you had the app and the database, right? And the, all the complexity, you could just attach your debugger and step through it if, if you had to. But then we, we kind of blew up the app, the monolith, and now it's in services scattered to the winds. And, you know, you can't just like trace it. And so observability is kind of a way of passing that context along hop by hop so that you can actually slice and dice in real time, and and you know the hardest problem is not usually debugging the code; it's finding out where in the system is the code that you need to debug. And observability, like if you accept my definition, which is that it's about unknown unknowns, that you should be able to ask any question of your systems, understand any internal state just by observing it from the outside. Well, then a lot of things proceed from that, in my opinion. Like you need to be able to handle high cardinality, you know, high dimensionality. You need to be able to string together a lot of these high cardinality dimensions. You need to, you know, any kind of schema or or indexing scheme in, in advance is verboten because you don't know what questions you're going to need to ask, right? And so, you know, there's a lot that kind of follows, flows from that definition, arbitrarily wide structured data blobs is a source of truth, et cetera. But at, the, at its heart, it's just about the concept that our problems are getting harder and harder. We don't get paged to go, oh, that again, Oh, that again. Ideally, now we fix those things, right? But we still get paged, right? What the hell is this, right? You know, it's about allowing engineers, empowering them to, in a a reasonable amount of time, you know, be in constant conversation with that code that's out there in the world. Because, you know, most problems, honestly, we never get paged about. They're too subtle until they snowball and they pick up other problems, like like a hairball under your couch, right? Until it gets so big and so impacting that it, actually does alert someone. And then you just start like picking up the rock and be like, oh, God, what's that? Well, we've never understood this, you know, and that's why ops has such a reputation for masochism.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. There's so many little pieces in what you just said that really deeply resonate with me. Although there is one facet of uh, some of the way that you talk about observability that I find interesting. I'm someone who likes to cling to the perhaps unrealistic these days ideal of a monolith of what if we were to just keep everything in the same place and all the data live together in one database and I could have foreign keys and consistencies and which you should do for as
1: long as you possibly can as you should never like impose more complexity on yourself than you absolutely need to and, you know, I would say that, you know, it's never not better to have observability than the older paradigms of monitoring and so forth. Some of Honeycomb's biggest and best customers still use monoliths, um, but they still find it really valuable to be able to apply the principles. You know, I, I think that it's the microservices revolution, if you will, that forced this sort of set of changes. You know, it was inevitable. You know, the stuff that I started talking about, like somebody would have because the older ways just became untenable when you started adopting, you know containerization and, you know, you know, a lot of these things that made everything suddenly a high cardinality dimension, including the number of applications you have. It's never not better to have, you know, high cardinality tools and and to be able to instrument your code for spans and tracing. Like tracing is still valuable even in a monolith.
0: Yeah, that's definitely as I've observed uh, and started to play around with Honeycomb. That's definitely what I've seen is I'm Almost exclusively working in the context of monoliths, and like I said, clinging to them for as long as I possibly can, which that isn't cute. going to be forever. I, <laughs> I recognize that truth, but already I see the value. And so, Honeycomb is a platform that you've built that allows for this high cardinality, high dimensionality, ad hoc queries at any point in time. And so, I, the idea that I can come into the tool and say, Huh, I've got a new novel problem today. I don't need to reinstrument my code. I can just ask a new question, and the system will responsively be able to answer that question ideally. And yeah. that Feels like it holds true in a monolith, all the more so, like you said, in an SOA architecture. Uh, but even in my safe little playground of everything's in the same space, I still don't know how everything's working all the time. Yeah. If we're being honest, so yeah. being able to answer those questions feels meaningful.
1: Totally, I think that, like you know, one way of thinking about the you know SOA or microservices is that it pushes it pushes a lot of what was in operations realm into the realm of development. Suddenly, you're responsible for a lot more of the operating of your services. Right? Things like, you know, retries and backoffs and, you know, load distribution and thundering herds and all these things that, you know, ops traditionally took care of. Well, now you kind of have to think about them. So you need some opsy tools too. What I like about, you know, of course I like everything about honeycomb because we designed it kind of for, for this problem but you know it speaks in the language of variables and endpoints and you know functions and and not in the low level language of you know proc ipv6 you know timeouts and stuff where i feel like ops has also traditionally like been the translation layer between software engineers and their actual code in production and it's kind of time to start giving software engineers those tools in their own language
0: Yeah, I I love that. And I'm very happy to have Honeycomb as part of uh, sort of an instrumentation stack, uh, which actually sort of shifts me to the next question, which as I look at Honeycomb, I'm very quickly the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. I I want this in the world.
1: Oh, I like you. (laughs) You're not, the. not all people are like
0: you. (laughs) Might have been my second or third look, but it was definitely, once I got it, I was like, oh yes, I absolutely want that. Yeah. But now the question that I have is I typically will have a collection of tools that sort of exist in the space. And there's a weird Venn diagram overlap of, well, there's logging and there's error tracking and there's APM performance tools and there's metrics dashboards and my sense is that honeycomb perhaps can or uh, uh, an observability tool more generally can subsume a bunch of those yeah but it's not clear to me exactly like i think i probably still want logging mm-hmm. i think i still want error tracking as a discrete Mm-hmm. service tool that I'm using, but maybe not APM and maybe not metrics as a distinct thing. Maybe I can infer those from a tool yeah. like Honeycomb, but I'm wondering what, what's the current thought on that?
1: Well, part of what you're seeing is just the, that, you know, observability tooling is, is very new and we we haven't had time to grow up. I think that ultimately, I think that in here, I'm like, you know, officially we play very nicely with all other vendors and none of us would ever try to compete or take away from each other's faces. But I, I do think that ultimately... You know, logging, pretty much the only real use case for it is security stuff. You know, the the, the security archiving, you know, just keep every log way. You know, it's it's gotten cheap enough. And stuff, but it's not actually useful for debugging or understanding your systems. Not really. It's useful for, you know, compliance. It's useful for proving that you did something in the past. Um, most logs are just a pile of trash. But they can be useful trash, and I understand people's emotional want to hold on to them for a while and there's nothing wrong with that you know there's nothing wrong with keeping some trash around for a while while you make that <laughs> sorry not to totally slam on logs but there are i, I are love the analogies
0: trash. as we're going for <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the thing about observability is you know i, I do think this, the kind of center of the world is these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs right that from which you can infer logs from which you can infer metrics from which you can roll up you know so i, I do think that you know well, metrics are the right first tool for understanding infrastructure. Like, if if you're Amazon and you're responsible for, you know, all this hardware and stuff, you know, you should be asking yourself, is my service healthy? But if you're someone who's writing and shipping code on top of that service, you care about, can my requests complete? What is my user's experience, right? And and that's that's observability's territory. So I think that, like, ultimately, I do think metrics, logs, and traces all get subsumed under the observability umbrella and, you know, performance management too, um, if the tools get built correctly, there, there, there will still be use cases. They will just get smaller, you know, for logs um, for standalone metrics tools for, you know, Honeycomb just launched our, our metrics product. Metrics is like a 30 year old, you know, piece of technology that, you know, Prometheus and Datadog are going to be the last best metrics tools ever built. Like we have wrung the water out of this laundry. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, we aren't trying to compete with that. What we are trying to do is give people an on-ramp in Honeycomb. They've got, like, decades worth of stuff that they've, they've been corraling these metrics, structuring them. You know, you rely on them. You don't want to give them up. So, yeah, let's feed them in. Let's, you know, give them an overlay. And number two, like, the more interesting use case for me is when you're a software engineer who's writing and shipping code, you do care about did the memory usage just triple right? Or is the CPU now just like completely buzzing after I ship my last change? But there's really only like three or four of those metrics that you really care about as system metrics. The rest are mostly legacy.
0: I think that makes I I like the idea that aspirationally Honeycomb is moving towards a place where, well, given sufficient input data, given this arbitrarily wide data blob with high cardinality, et cetera, that we can infer basically all of those others from it. But also speaking to like also observability somewhat new. And so we got to build a lot of product to get there. And that idea that like there is perhaps a space right now where you might be bringing together a few of these tools. But I, I do like, if there is a future world in which I can have one of these tools that just handles everything and tells me about my code and directs me to the line yeah. of code that I that I yeah. incorrectly instrumented, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, happy to do the work in the interim to sort of, you know, cobble it together from the pieces.
1: The, the place in the meantime that we're at where all of these big vendors are acquiring other vendors and trying to put together, they're like, we have three pillars. Coincidentally, we have three products to sell you you know it's like it's not good for the users because when you're like you you're in the middle you're sitting in the middle here and you've got your metrics dashboard that's telling you there's a problem okay but you can't slice it down and figure out what it is so you have to jump over into logs and just kind of visually correlate based on the times and hope no timestamps are wrong and try and you know find the thing and then, and then oh, okay so you want to trace it so you got to copy over and try and find that in your tracing product and hope that that one got sampled in you know you know it's it's not good you can't Follow the the question from the beginning. I have a problem to the end. I have a solution and, and back, right? And it's not linear, right? You're going to be, you're going to be following a trail. Then you're going to need to back up and then you're going to find another trail. And then you're going to want to zoom out and see who else is impacted, you know, and you, you really can't back your way into that with different products. You have to start with the, arbitrarily wide structure data pump what does confuse me is i know that new relic was built on this new relic has these and we almost didn't start honeycomb because we were just like any data. now new relic's gonna figure it out you know here we are like six years later and they still haven't fucking figured it out so <laughs> but, but like datadog they aren't based on that arbitrarily wide structure you know so they're really true and, and i know that they're trying to get all of these big vendors are trying to get to where honeycomb sits technically faster than we can grow up and become a business the race is on. Yeah. It's fun.
0: One of the related things that I've I've seen you talk about a few times is the idea that instrumentation is a muscle. It's a it's a habit that needs to be developed and fostered and that rings very true to me at the same time, a lot of my instrumentation work has been more in a reactive space. If we're being completely honest, something went mm-hmm. wrong. We can't figure it out from what the information that we have available. So then we go in and we add a new logging line. We we wrap the code in some way. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. What does that look like in practice or it, perhaps some examples or something, but how can we tease that yeah. apart and understand that a little bit better? Because it sounds wonderful to me.
1: I think, of, I think of instrumenting a lot like commenting your code. It's it's just, it's, it's, it's a way of thinking to the field future and like sort of re- reverse engineering what am I going to care about what is someone else going to care about right and I, and I really do think of I think of commenting as just a you know a less true version of instrumentation honestly it's it's you talking about what you think the code should be doing but you've left production out of the loops so you don't know what the code is doing <laughs> but like ideally they're, they're kind of the same muscle it's it's while you're writing your code you, you you've just kind of developed like a a monitoring thread, almost in your brain, that's like, oh, yep, this is going to be valuable. Oh, yep, this is going to be valuable. And so, I do think that it's it's on vendors to make sure that we do as much for you as possible. You shouldn't have to. And this, honestly, this is the long, winding journey to journey to honeycomb finding product market fit, which took almost three and a half, four years. A big part of it was us adopt embrace, and break. For a long I was like, it's not magic. <laughs> you have to understand your code. You have to blah blah blah. Which is true. But also we need to we need to like walk closer to the user. We need to make it easier. We need to do the B lines, which, you know, will initialize the event, pre-populate it with a bunch of stuff, you know, create the, the framework so that all you have to do as a user is just like print F now and then just like up oh, stuff this in the blog. up oh, stuff this in the blog. Right? Vendors should make it as easy as possible, as automated as possible. We have more to do. We really should be like pre populating it with all of the language internals and all of the stuff about the environment, you know, we've, we've just begun to like tap that well, but there's something that we can't do for you, which is understand what you're trying to do and what is important. Honestly, here's a, here's a story from the past. The reason that New Relic was so big you know they they hit the ground and they're just, super hockey stick and everything was because they dovetailed with the rise of ruby and rails because ruby allows for so much fucking monkey patching you can just like every web app looks the same you know you can just be like we assume all this crap and so we can make it just like magic for you right you just install this library boom you're off to the racing well try as we might safer typed language, like Go, you can't do that stuff with. You can't make it as as magical. You have to think a lot more about how you're structuring things, for better or for worse, right? Which is why, you know, their growth slowed, because those languages aren't so popular anymore. So it's trade-offs all the way down, right? Yes, everybody should be an expert in, like, forecasting the future and understanding all the subtle things that you don't know you're going to know, but you super are going to want to know. But as you've discovered, like, Most of your learning comes from being in the trenches, which is why it's so good for devs to be on call and be close to their code and be like in this constant conversation with it because you develop a sixth sense. I know I can't tell you exactly why I know it's going to be a problem, but I'm just going to like wrap it because I'm pretty sure it is.
0: There was a tiny bit that I was hoping that you would have some, you know, very specific like, oh, you just do X, Y and Z. I kind of knew that wasn't going to be the answer, but it also represents something that I so appreciate about your thinking and and the work that you put out into the world, which is it's realistic. Sometimes you're like, you know what? There's going to be some tacit knowledge involved here. You got to you got to put in the work. You got to learn the thing. And. That's just true sometimes. And so I appreciate your willingness to be like, yeah, no, you know what you got to do? You got to do the work. And then after that, you'll know, you know, and so there's sort of a, a virtuous cycle that can happen here. There is a, a feature, as far as I understand it, of Honeycomb too, if, if I can briefly uh, hype up your product slightly. But the idea that you can observe the series of questions that another developer asked so if they yes. were in a debugging session you can see like oh they asked this and then they asked this and then they filtered on that it's and like your bash
1: history but for debugging <laughs> i
0: want this for everything i want just right? let's have a shared hive mind of the developers on a team both in terms of our observability tool but also just kind of everything how, how do we you do
1: what did you do and yeah. why? What
0: were you thinking? Yes, I saw you exactly. went down a road there, but then you stopped and yes. you backed up and yes. you went a different way. That's interesting yes. to me. And
1: this is why we we keep trying to build things into the product that will, in, will that will incentivize people to write text about what they're doing, right? Whether it's retroactively applying tags or writing just like a, a breadcrumb to yourself, like what what why why was this meaningful? Like as you're as you're putting it in your bookmarks, like why are you putting it in your bookmarks, right? collaboration is is just as much about collaborating with your past self and your future self as it is with the rest of your team, right? Like, I don't remember why the fuck I did that two years ago. You want me to, I don't know. I don't remember why I did that two months ago, but like the more you can leave breadcrumbs for yourself, and then surface that to the team. You're right. It's, it's, it's transformational. I, I wanted this so selfishly because I have never been that person on the team who loves graphs. I hate graphs. I don't think visually very well at all. I've always, I've been working with my friend Ben Hartshorn off and on for like 10, 12 years now. He's always the person. I've hired him repeatedly. He's always the person who comes in and makes the graphs, right? And then I look over his shoulder and I bookmark them. I can't be up all night making the perfect dashboard. And then I'm like, great, like <laughs> mine. <laughs> so like there's room in the world for both of us, right? But the point is that not all of us should have to go through that effort. <laughs> we should be able to learn from each other. Only one person should ever have to craft the perfect query and then the rest of the team should be able to effortlessly piggyback on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I want that, but for everything. I dream of a future in which that's true.
1: So much of debugging is like, is is this wandering path, right, where you go down the wrong place and you need to be able to zoom back to, all right, where did I first know that I had, I had a beat on it, right?
0: There's a corollary that I see to pair programming where one of the things that I find so valuable is what Google query do you type in when you hit that wall? When you're like, oh, this uh, isn't working as I'm thinking, and then you type uh, something and I'm like, whoa, wait, I wouldn't I have even thought that. to ask that question of the internet.
1: I love that. That's good. But
0: now you've you've productized that, and I love that. So thank you for building that thing in the world. (laughs)
1: Excellent.
0: Uh, Shifting gears slightly, one of the other themes that you uh, really push for in the world is the idea of continuous deployment. And not like, yeah, no, you should ship your code pretty quickly after you merge it, but true, sincere, continuous deployment.
1: 15 minutes or bust. 15 minutes (laughs) or bust. Uh, Tests in production.
0: (laughs) There are some really wonderful, if if we're being honest, scary themes that you talk about. Uh, They are... I love the ideas that you're putting out there, but they're probably the things that I look at. And I'm like, Ooh, that's, that seems like a whole thing right there. And so it assumes
1: a lot, let's put it that way. It, it assumes it definitely a lot does of that. people who elicit. Yeah.
0: I desperately want to get to that world, want to get to the place yeah. where there's that confidence. And you similarly, there's, there's a, a theme that you've talked about around Friday deploy freezes and why that's not a good thing. And the, the empathy for humans, that part's good, but maybe we're applying it in the wrong way. If we say we're not allowed to deploy code on Friday, cause it's like, yeah, deploying code is terrifying and scary like no let's solve that problem Uh, but i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that how do you how do you get there how do you get to the place where continuous deployment is a realistic outcome for your team
1: yeah that's a very good question there are no easy answers, unfortunately, you know. And the answer is always going to depend on where you, where you're starting from, right? Are you starting from a clean slate? Are you starting like a lot of the advice that I give sounds like Looney Tunes to someone who's coming from enterprise, who they're just like, "You don't understand the constraints that I am operating under." And I'm like, "No, you're right. I'm not of your world. That that probably shows." <laughs> so I think the easiest way, though, is always if, when you're starting a new project big what you do on day one, be set up your CI/CD and deploy it to prod. Like before you've even started building. Cause if you, if you, it's like my favorite analogy is an to, analogy to like, you know, the myth about Alexander the great, and his horse, how when he was a little boy, he would pick it up every day before he had breakfast. And so by the time he was an adult, he could pick up his horse because he picked it up every day. And it was never hard. Right. Right. Like when you start deploying that way, it's never hard when you're just like, okay, anytime this gets above 10 minutes, we're going to put in a couple hours of work and it's never hard right? It's just the easiest thing in the world. And everything is easier because you get to watch what you're doing in near real time. And you develop that muscle of just, i uh, merging it to, ma- to main. I'm going to go look at it in a couple minutes, you know, and you don't feel done in your gut until you've looked at it. And, and like, that's doing it on easy mode. And you can do this in a hybrid way, even if you have like long, painful deploy. Like nobody's saying you have to sign up for a long, painful deploy process when you have to spin up a new project, right? And and, I, and I've seen it gain momentum. You know, if you start something up cleanly the new way, everybody sees how fast this team is executing. Everybody wants a piece of it, and so you start learning from the way that you were able to do it in your unique environment. Like you're the best evangelist to to the rest of your your team members, right? Because. You know the subtleties. You know the potholes. So that's the easy answer: is start fresh. <laughs>
0: I'll just uh, <laughs> that that makes sense. I do again. I appreciate the pragmatism or the the realism of the way that you approach a lot of the topics. And-
1: Another answer, though, though is just the, the the engineering work involved in like taking a deploy pipeline down from you know hours, days, you know, to like 15 minutes. It's just engineering work. It is just labor. It can be done. The political problems are the hard ones. I, I mean, I'm parse, you know, sometimes our deploy pipeline would get up to you two or three hours and we're just like, oh God, this is not put in the work. You know, you just start instrumenting your pipeline, you start looking at where the tests are taking time, you know, and, and it will pay dividends every every bit of you know time that you pay down, you know, which is why I I really see, you know, those long, you know, hour-long pipelines is it's a vacuum of of engineering leadership that they've allowed it to happen. Because there's nothing fancy about it. You just put in some work.
0: Yeah, the, the solvability of the, the technical challenge feels very true. But what you're saying of it's it's people problems, which, again, kind of uh, that's it's people
1: problems. That's always true of yeah, the tech stuff. W- but I also hate it when people are just like, oh, it's people problems. I mean, it's mysterious and unsolvable. Now, most of the times when you see this, it's, it's a lack of collective confidence, you know, in themselves. Uh, they see this as being a just for, you know, the elite engineers or only ex-Googlers are allowed to do this or something. Or, you know, they they they, they go to conferences and they hear about it and they're just like, God, I wish I was allowed to do that or I wish we could do this, you know. But the thing is that, like, engineers have more power than they than they realize. You know, we build these companies. They wouldn't exist if it's not for us. We have all the power if we just choose to use it. I feel like, you know, I know that a lot of these people out here who I've talked to are just like, oh, I wish we I'm like, have you ever lobbied for it? And you're like, no, I just know we couldn't, you know, or that's someone else's decision. I'm not going to promise you that you can get whatever you want, but I promise you that if you start speaking up, if you start, you know, talking to your colleagues, be like, wouldn't it be nice? And they start speaking up, you know, if a quarter of the engineers want something in a company, it gets done. You know, <laughs>
0: that definitely feels true. And to the to the topic of actually lobbying for this and, and making the having the hard conversations internally and working on the people problems, you have done, I think, a really fantastic job of providing actual benchmarks in terms of timing. And what does this look like as a practice? And what are the, the multi so yeah.
1: it's so costly to, to organizations, you know, and, and it's the easy answer for any engineering leader to be like, well, we need to hire You know, that is the laziest answer in the world. You probably don't. You probably just need to fix your CID system and then bask in the resources that you suddenly freed up.
0: (laughs) You actually, you have a wonderful blog post that really, I think, does such a good job of highlighting the cost that you're talking about there, the human cost of for every slowdown in your deploy process. It has this downstream ramification and having that as sort of a piece, a bargaining chip in the conversation of... Here's a voice that is saying a very clear thing about this cost of not doing this work, which granted that, you know, it's always trade-offs. Everything is an optimization. But here is a way to actually measure the cost of not going this approach. And again, I appreciate your putting that out there in the world so that the rest of us can be like, look, on the Internet, it says so.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I'm happy to be the Internet for you. (laughs) No, but it's so true because. Other people in your business, they don't want you to suffer, too, either. You know, they don't want everything to get slow. They just aren't equipped to understand the cost of the slowness the way that engineers are. You know, and I feel like sometimes this is, you know, it's like we're always lamenting, like, why does product get to, like, own all the engineering cycles? Why aren't we allowed to, like, you know, pay it on our tech debt or, you know, do all this other stuff? I promise you're allowed to. You just have to make the case because the case is righteous and just justified. You know, but you have to you have to explain to them the cost that it's incurring your organization in terms of your ability to execute and in terms of your ability to hire and retain people. You just have to, like, explain those costs. And engineers are just like, oh, well, we only want to say it once, right? Well, you, that's not how you win arguments. You have to say it. You probably lose. And you say it again. You probably lose. You say it a third. You you'll win eventually because you control all of the you know all of the creative labor of the you know tactical organization you know so like just make the fucking case <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i make it sound simple it's not
0: <laughs> i love the soundbite of the cause is righteous and that is the kernel of the thing here which is like just yes. to be clear this is a virtuous path that you are going down yes. battle for it work towards it uh, absolutely So i think a a related topic here so continuous deployment is one of those things that you want to get to and a practice that you want to evolve to but in exploring some of your other work one of the things that i was exposed to is the dora metrics which is not something that i had seen before Uh, but for anyone who's unfamiliar the dora metrics is a set of four uh, key metrics to track developer and team productivity so their deployment frequency lead time for changes change failure rate and the time to restore the service uh, and they are deeply interesting because, frankly, I have for a long time yeah. felt like developer productivity was not really a quantifiable not, thing. Yeah. I, individual developer productivity, I still feel like mm. this is a bad thing. Don't do that. But team productivity, these these metrics yeah. actually are like, oh, yeah. actually, as I look at those, those seem, yeah, those seem like the good ones. We should do that. I'm wondering, what does that look like in practice when you see that actually employed within an organization? What's the, the feedback loops and how does this appear in the world?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to you know Jez Humble and G Kim and, and Nicole, who worked on this for years and got this out into the world. You know, just putting some actual you know research behind the stuff that we were the stories that we were telling ourselves about productivity, right? Um, and it, people who haven't read Accelerate, a lot of a lot of people are always asking me like, you know. Do we have any stories? Do you have any research? Do You have any proof or something? Yeah, I just always point to the book, Accelerate. Like that's that's where that's where it all comes from. Yeah, it's, it's it's true because it's 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 such a noisy world, right? Like when, when you're in engineering work and there's so much going on, and there's so much stuff that bugs you personally, and so much stuff that you have true beliefs about, you know. And it's hard to boil, just cut through the noise. And and I feel like that's the great right gift of the DORA metrics. You know, if you start focusing on one of them. You will lift your your org out of poverty, and, and the others will get better too. You know, and, and and it provides just this wonderful focus point for teams that aren't sure where they stand or aren't sure how to get better because it can be it can be so mystifying, right? Like when, when you're in when you're in the trenches and you're just like, why does everything feel so hard? Why is it that we thought this would take you know two days, and here it is two months later, and we can't ship anything, and it feels like the more we ship, the farther behind we get. These are like the beacon of hope. It's like you pay attention to these, your lives will get better. You, you can dig yourself out of this out of this ditch. That that's certainly been true for you know the teams that I've been on, and you know high performing teams. You know I think we all have this this idea in our heads that high performing teams are ones where the great engineers join. When in fact you know those great engineers could could join your team and they wouldn't get any any more done than you are, right? Because most of our productivity. Is defined not by the data structures and algorithms that you know, but by these social technical systems that we swim in every day. You know, it's the water around us. It's the friction involved in getting that code to production. If it takes the magical engineer from Google, you know, twenty-four hours to get their code change out, well, they're not—they're not a member of a high-performing team either. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, all these people out there who you know don't haven't experienced a world like this, don't live in a world like this. Um, and, and in my experience, they, they often lack a lot of confidence because they don't think they're that good or they don't think that they can have nice things. And the Dora metrics are that's your ticket to a better life. You know, it's like go to college and, and graduate because, you know, it kicks off, you know, these virtuous feedback loops, these, these cascading cycles of things getting better for everyone and things, and people getting more excited and energized. Engineers don't get burned out by shipping too much code. They get burned out by not being able to ship code, right? And and if you're a leader in any type of organization, and I don't just mean manager, I mean any type of senior engineer or manager or whatever, um, then it's part of your job to pay attention to these metrics. Lobby for them, track them, track them on your own if you must, you know, and try to make them better. Because every engineering team has two customers, right? Or two, whatever, I'm, mis- I'm blanking the word, but it's your customers. And your engineering team, right? Those are your two, you're responsible to both of them. And I've never seen one one of those sets deliriously happy and the other set miserable. They tend to rise and fall in tandem.
0: I'm just nodding along uh, for anyone in the audience who can't see what my head's doing. But I, I love so much all of the things that you're saying. And, and again, the sort of passion and conviction that you bring to this conversation, because these are amorphous, hard to pin down ideas. But I so appreciate the the sort of uh, North Star that you're setting across all of these different things that as I'm reading, it, I'm like, yeah that, yeah, that sounds true. I want that. Those things are the things that I want. But interestingly, one of the other threads that I see weaving through uh, a lot of your work is obviously we've, we've talked a bunch about just deeply technical topics thus far, but you also a lot of your work spans across to the interpersonal and frankly, you know, even dividing it in that way is not representative of the world because it's a Venn diagram mishmash of some days it's technical, some days it's personal, some days it's both. Uh, but one of the things that you've talked about is the engineer-manager pendulum, which I find super interesting. I think every engineer at some point has that that question, that internal, like, oh, do I, do I want to go engineer track or manager track and this distinct idea or the idea that management is a promotion and Any any other movement would be different. And you have wonderful things to say about that. Uh, The other thing that you've pointed out is that former managers can often make great engineers after the fact because of the sort of earned empathy that they have now from looking at things from a slightly different angle Uh, but i'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on that because i think it's such an important space and uh, i've definitely previously operated under the like i i'm an engineer and then i guess i got to be a manager and then i guess i don't know where i go from there but it's this very linear path and you sort of shook that worldview of mine and again i appreciate that shaking but yeah i would love to hear a little bit more about that
1: the best people that I've ever worked with have been engineers who who had been managers for a while and then you know went back to engineering and it's and it's not just empathy although there's a lot of that too it's also a deeper understanding of of the business and and the reason that we do things so much of being a powerful engineer is choosing the right work to work on right so that you get a lot done very efficiently and quickly and you don't spend a lot of time just foundering, right? Once you've mastered, you know, the basic technical principles and how do you get better? A lot of it is just getting better, identifying what to do and, and what not to do because we could, we have to not do so much more than we can ever do <laughs> in order to move forward. Yeah, I, I wrote that blog post as a, as a present for a friend of mine who was a director of engineering at the time and he was suffering. Like, he was just miserable and he kept... Thinking about going back to engineering, just kind of dragging his, you know, because he did not, he wasn't in an org where that was really celebrated or anything. And, and it felt like, I mean, when you, when you've been there from the beginning, you built the organization, you're like a senior director and everything. It, it feels like a long way to fall, you know? And I wrote that post for him and he did end up going on to be an engineer after that. And he was so much happier. And, and but I think he was surprised at how um, he didn't fall at all right? He he was seen, he was perceived, he was, he actually probably had, I think the engineers actually had a higher opinion of him afterwards when he was one of them again, you know, and he still had, you know, this, this vaunted voice, you know, because he could speak to how the system had been there since the beginning. And he basically got to like, look around and look out farther than the engineers who were you know, heads down every day and go, this is going to bite us, you know, I'm going to take a small team, we're going to do this, you know, forward looking security product, you know, I I don't want to like, to you know, identifying details. But like that for me really just kind of cinched It was like the more we can strip hierarchy out of these discussions, the healthier everyone's going to be because we're just monkey brains, you know, at the end of and our, and our And the monkey brain in our school hates losing hierarchy, hates losing, you know, power or stance or or anything. And I think that the thing that you learn after you've been a manager is that, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, the wizard behind the curtain. The idea that you have more power as a manager it, you have more of some types of power and you have a lot less of other types and you're just as constrained as the engineers, but in other ways, right? And and the, the path moving forward is not to like dominate people or be above them, but to like combine your powers for good and, you know, self-sort, you know, to find the places that actually give you the most joy,
0: that's a it's a wonderful philosophy, and the actually a thing that you said in there really stuck out to me. Which was you wrote that blog post as a gift to someone, and that is such a, a kind thing to do. And it also again sort of reflects what I see in your work overall. You're really clearly leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind you to help other folks that are traversing a similar path, but questioning aspects of it, or how do we do this well, or how do we, why is everyone sad and why is it bad? And and uh, so again, I so appreciate all of that work that you've done.
1: I think that that comes from my lifetime in the trenches of operations. <laughs> ops is notorious for the pain that we bring upon ourselves and, and try to solve. But I would just like to add a pitch out there for other ops engineers of the world and, and our and our colleagues. You know, I was fortunate enough to rise up through the ranks in, in organizations that really respected operations. You know, we always felt we ruled the roost. Like we felt like we were way above all the other developers. You know, we got to say what went into production and what didn't. And I And I feel like ultimately that's... <laughs> If, if you have to have an imbalance of power, I think that's slightly healthier than the developers ruling the roost. Ultimately, there shouldn't necessarily be an imbalance of power, but I, I just I just want to like, this whole no-ops thing really got, a, got my goat for a while there because operations is just, it's just the engineering work around delivering value to users, you know? And as more and more, you know, I think the second wave of DevOps is now about, okay, software engineers, you know, it's your turn. It's time to like learn to write operable software. And so I just wanted to like, throwing my, my hat in the ring for all the ops people out there. You're just as good. You're just as good as anyone else.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a theme that I've seen in your writing of everybody's doing good, important work and breaking down hierarchy and just collaboratively moving in the same directions and trying to choose the right north stars to aim towards. And yeah, it's all it's all fantastic. And so with that, I think we probably reached a perfect spot to wrap up. But Charity, if folks want to keep up with more of your work online, where's the best places to find you?
1: My blog post is at charity.wtf. And I'm Nipsy Tipsy on Twitter. And of course, the Honeycomb, uh, Honeycomb.io and our blog, Verity.
0: We will include links to all of that and many of the blog posts and other uh, podcast interviews that you've been on, a bunch of just various things that I collected as I was preparing for this episode. Because again, you've, you've produced such a, uh, a wealth of information on the internet that I want to point as many folks as possible towards those things. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm.
1: This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore.
0: If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show.
1: If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or reach me on Twitter at sva
0: and I'm at Chris Toomey,
1: or we can reach us at host at bike shed.fm via email.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.